Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Book lovers around the world, welcome to episode 89 of the Sample Chapter Podcast. This is the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. And this week's guest is the multi-talented, award-winning author, Edward Willett. It's an incredible conversation, and you are really in for a big treat when it comes to his reading, so make sure you stay tuned. That's coming up in just a few minutes. Oh my gosh, it it is a lot of fun. You're going to love it. Like I said, this is the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. I'm, I'm blown away. I can't believe this is episode 89. We are fast closing in on that 100th episode, that landmark that almost two years ago when this began, I didn't know if it would last this long. I had hoped it would go more than 10. <laughs> and now I'm, you know, closing in, getting closer to 10 times that. And, you know, and m- many of the uh, guests over the next several weeks have already been planned and recorded. I've got a couple others scheduled yet. I mean, I've almost got us all scheduled out to 100. So, it's amazing. I'm I'm loving doing this and I really love seeing online on my on my map. I get to see countries popping up all the time that are checking the show out, which is just again, that just amazes me and I really appreciate people are finding a lot of value out of the show. I I hope you're finding new authors that you are coming to love and books that uh, that you're coming to love. Don't forget that whenever you do find a book that you enjoy, go and leave a review. Let them know what you thought of that book because that is, you know, those reviews are the lifeblood. That's that's what's giving that author that feeling of accomplishment that, all right, somebody enjoyed what I did, something I created. And it's a very lovely gesture on the part of the reader to, the, to take the time and do that. So, yeah, don't forget to go and leave a review for them. Uh, if you are so inclined, go ahead and leave a review for this show. You can give us a star rating and a review on whatever it is that you like to listen to the show because we are available on just about every podcast platform there is, as well as YouTube. You can follow us on social media at Twitter and on Facebook. And if you ever want to reach out to me, you can do so through email at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com. Well, October is here. The cooler weather is starting to settle in. You know, it's it's getting really nice outside. I actually sat outside the other day with my new keyboard that I shared a picture of here a while back. I had my keyboard and my phone pulled up my, my Scrivener app and went to work sitting outside with a cigar. Just gorgeous weather. Incredible day. And this is this is a magical time of year. I I love it. It's that that just that fall crispness in the air, you know, and it really got my creative juices going. I got a lot of words written the other day. And uh, I'm pushing hard to get not only the novel I'm working on right now, get it done by the end of the month so I can start on book two of that series. But I'm also got renewed fervor in finishing my second novel, um, which is called A Novel Idea. I'm working really hard to get those edits done and, and getting it out to my beta readers real fast. Uh, the hope is that I can get this out this month i don't know if that's going to happen <laughs> we'll see it's uh, the month is 
I mean, it's only the, uh, let's see, as of today's episode, it's the 8th of October, but um, that that feels like, feels like the month is already slipping away from me. <laughs> you know, you ever get that feeling? It's like it's the first of the month and all of a sudden you already feel like it's almost gone. Your plans that we're, we're coming up later on is, it's already on you, so you're out of time. Ah, that's kind of how I feel sometimes with uh, trying to get some things done. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of the cool things is I did recently get some new updates on my first novel, Nine Mile Bridge. Got some new updates done on those. Had some grammatical errors that I'd been compiling a list of things. People had told me like, hey, yeah, did you know that this word was, you know, like there and there. Uh, you know, simple little things that your mind fills in the blanks or you know, maybe, maybe you missed a word or something. And when you're reading it, you, you, you know, as the writer... The author, you've read this and you've seen it a thousand times, and so you don't you don't see the mistake. But then somebody else tells you like, "Hey, yeah, you wrote there when you meant they are." So I've been compiling a list. I finally took some time, went in, made all these changes, uh, found a few others on my own. Um, even had one scene that was a little bit I needed to make it a little bit different. I was never really happy with it, and I found a different uh, way to to say it, which I'm much more happy with. And then I. Finally got the back matter updated, so I've got my official website tied in there at the back of it at uh, jasonamiski.com. The link is on there. If you're on Kindle, you can just click that. Uh, and then, uh, of course, I got a, the, the link for this show as well, the sampletractorpodcast.com. Um, anyway, all, all of my news, because when I wrote the book a year and a half ago when that book came out, my original plans for what books were coming out soon... Well, <laughs> that never happened. I'd I had hoped to have my next book out later that year, and it didn't happen. And the title of that book changed, and actually the entire book itself changed. And so, you know, what I'd planned on writing is not what is coming out next. So, so I got all that updated. Amazon took my changes for the ebook, and that's been fine. That's been up for about a week now. But the paperback, I keep running into formatting problems, and I I don't know I don't understand why. There's, there's nothing wrong. There's no errors popping up, but they keep telling me there's an error. So I'm actually working with Amazon right now to find out what, what's the deal with that. Anyway, but that's all going to be, that's all taken care of. And so, you know, if you, if you have checked out Nine Mile Bridge and you enjoyed it, I really appreciate it. I know there's some people who've been, uh, maybe it's the weather, uh, because this is a paranormal thriller. Maybe it's the, uh, that Halloween time. I've been noticing a lot more sales than normal. So thank you. If you are one of those people who picked up a copy, I, I really appreciate it. It is available on Kindle Unlimited. So if you're listening and you're interested and you have a Kindle Unlimited account, you can borrow it for free. Anyway, that is more than enough about me. Um, my interview this week with Edward Willett was truly inspiring. I, I mean, I, I really mean it was inspiring because he had some insight and things that he said that just really spoke to me. Things like his ideas on idea generation being a muscle that you need to work. You know, you need to exercise it. Um, when he talks about identifying his idea that writers are more of a world shaper than a builder. And that that resonated with me, you know. And, and you're going to hear, I'm trying to express what my thoughts on what he's saying as in terms of clay. But for some reason I said rock. I don't know what that was about. But my point was, I was trying to say, because we're taking this idea and shaping it into a story. And just, you know, but just that, 
that and so many other things, Mr. Wilt just, I was raptured by so many things that he said and talked about. And the, the guy is very talented. I mean, from his singing voice to his reading voice to his ideas, everything is amazing. And yes, I said singing voice. If you get a chance, go online and check out his YouTube rendition of me from uh, from Beauty and the Beast. It is incredible. It is really incredible. I have checked it out. It's worth your time. Anyway, before I get us over the interview, I do want to thank our sponsors like you store all out of Warrensburg, Missouri. They are the absolute best place for self-storage in the Warrensburg area, hands down. With non-climbing control and climate control both, they have two facilities, completely fenced in, gated access with your own private gate codes, LED lighting all night long. It's very well lit and very, very clean. I hear people talking about it all the time and how clean the place is and how secure it is. And, you know, not only just with the lighting and the fencing, but they have more than 60 cameras recording 24 hours a day. Check them out online at ustoreall.net. That's spelled the letter U-S-T-O-R-A-L-L dot net. Of course, there is also my favorite writing software, Scribner. I already mentioned it once earlier that I use this for all of my writing on now. I have I have three different stories <laughs> on my Scribner app that I use. Uh, and it's amazing. I have all my notes, my character notes, my research. Everything is in the left-hand column, so I can just pull it up. Oh, what's that guy's name? I forgot the guy's name that I said in Chapter 2, and now I'm on Chapter 12. You know, it's just right there on the left-hand column. If you need to move a chapter around, you can do that. It's like, this chapter doesn't work anymore. I need to move it. Or you take a snapshot and then get rid of it. And then later on, you're like, wait a minute. I do need that chapter. After all, you can just pull it back in. Incredible stuff. You need to check them out as well. I've got a link in the show notes. Stay tuned here in just a moment. You're going to hear an advertisement for Scrivener, along with an incredible coupon code. And of course, I want to thank my friends at Pop Goes the Culture Network. So many incredible shows. They've got to have at least a dozen or more shows from their flagship show, Pop Goes the Culture, to the Back in Time podcast, these guys who talk about retro 80s and 90s movies. There's the Alamo Backlot podcast, weekly show about movie news, and it's, it's recorded right there at the Alamo Draft House in Springfield, Missouri. So many other shows. Uh, those are just three of the ones that I listen to every week, uh, but there are so many other great ones. They also have incredible blogs, some of them being written by the podcast hosts like Joey Mills. Uh, but uh, yeah, get on in there, check them out. Uh, they share our episodes every week. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll write a blog on her sometime as well. We'll see <laughs> We'll see how things go. But anyway, yeah, check them out. I've got links for all of our friends and sponsors in the show notes. So click that link once you're done listening. All right, well, let's get us on over to our interview with Edward Willett right after a word from Scrivener. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, 
Project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard. You can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener writing software, built by writers for writers. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Sample Chapter Podcast. Hey, today I have a very special guest, uh, one of uh, something that I don't think I've had before. Today we've got actor and singer, well, also multi-award winning sci-fi author and host of the World Shapers Podcast. We're talking about Edward Willett. Mr. Willett, welcome to the show. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Normally, the first thing I would do is ask uh, for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, but I, I want to ask you first, as a singer, do you have a favorite song? <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. I do a lot of musical theater, so a lot of my favorite songs are actually musical theater songs. But the single one, that's really difficult. <laughs> mm. I have a soft spot in my heart for... Um, it's an odd choice, but uh, me from Beauty and the Beast, because I've sung it many, many times. <laughs> it's not exactly, I mean, it's it's a horrible, It's in some ways it's a horrible song because it's the, the characters talking about what a wonderful, you know, how amazing he is and how Shirley Bell wants to marry him. But but still, I, I do have a soft spot for it. I even at our wedding, um, I set it up uh, at our reception. I sang it and I set it up as the song that I had proposed to uh, Margaret Ann with, but of course, had I actually used it to propose with, we would not be married. (laughs) Oh, oh, that's wonderful. Oh my gosh. I love that. I could see, I could see that. That could, that could get stuck in your head and uh, be a favorite. (laughs) I do it many times and I could do it acapella. Sometimes at school readings or presentations, if the kids aren't asking questions, I will shock and horrify them by bursting into song and doing that that song at the end of my school presentations. <laughs> it, it leaves an impression. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I, it's on YouTube if anybody wants to check it out. There's, it's on YouTube, me singing me, just sitting here as I am now in front of my computer singing it. So. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I uh, I was living in Japan when that, um, that Cher movie, Burlesque, came out. And I don't know why, but some of her songs stuck in my head, and I would break into share at my <laughs> desk. And uh, fortunately, nobody ever filmed any of it. But uh, I'll I'll admit it. Yes, I used to break out into share. I don't don't know what that was about. <laughs> well, all right. Well, uh, let us know a little bit about yourself. Uh, okay, uh, I'm a uh, award-winning author of more than 60 books of science fiction, fantasy, and nonfiction for all ages. I've written for uh, small kids and young adults and adults uh, in both my fiction and nonfiction. Um, I'm on my 10th novel for uh, Daw Books, New York's Daw Books, one of the major science fiction publishers in New York, but I've also published fiction with a number of, uh, of smaller publishers. Um and I even have my own publishing company called Shadowpaw Press, which is named after my cat, who's on the desk a minute ago, but he's left now, so he won't be part of this. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, I, I've always loved science fiction and fantasy, but I actually began my career as a newspaper reporter because uh, I decided to go into journalism as a kid because I wanted to be a writer, but I also knew you couldn't make a living as a writer. <laughs> so I went into something writing related where I figured at least I would be writing and I could work on my fiction on the side. So I was a newspaper reporter and then a newspaper editor at the ripe old age of 24. I was editing a weekly newspaper 
And then I worked uh, for the Saskatchewan Science Center when it was brand new, and I wrote a lot of exhibit copy for them because I'd always been interested in science, which actually came out of my science fiction uh, side of things. And then, let's see, what year is this? 26 years ago, <laughs> this month, in fact, I quit my job and became a full-time uh, freelance writer. And it was still a long time before I had any novels published, so four years, I think, before my first novel was published, and that was from a very bad publisher who shall remain nameless. Um, but my first book was actually using Microsoft Publisher for Windows 95. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and my second book was the sequel using Microsoft Publisher for Windows 97. So I did a lot of computer books, and I've done a lot of educational uh, uh, books for educational publishers, things like I've written biographies of people ranging from the Ayatollah Khomeini to Jimi Hendrix, which are about as far apart as you can get <laughs> as far as what they believed and practiced. But, uh, yeah, so anything for a buck, basically, is what I do as a writer. Well, yeah, I mean, it's been, you've been doing this since 93, and you've got a wealth of, uh, of books out there with, uh, like you said, you're writing YA, adult, short story, poetry, nonfiction, biographies, and that's got to help inform your writing today, I would think. Well, yeah, I mean, it's all grist for the mill. And one of the great things about being a newspaper reporter, in fact, especially at a weekly newspaper where I wasn't locked into a specific beat. I mean, I was the sports reporter, which was pretty funny because I wasn't much of a sports guy, but I was the sports reporter for a while. But I would write like up to three features a week and I'd be interviewing everybody from mountain climbers to television evangelists to politicians. Television evangelists and politicians have a lot in common, come to think of it. <laughs> and I would, uh, you know, but everything I was learning so much, I was writing, I had a weekly column, just thousands and thousands of words every single week uh, that I was writing. And it's all it's all practice. And then on the nonfiction side, I've always had a, a huge interest in science. And well, basically, I'm interested in anything. So. I'm willing to write a book about pretty much anything if anybody asks me to and figure I can I can uh, research it and write about it. And, yeah, all of that figures into to the fiction as well, because, you know, it's all it's all there in your head. And it's all this kind of bubbling plot of stuff that you you take ladles from and put it on the page in the form of words. How's that for a metaphor? <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm going to be, that's going to be pinned up on my corkboard here over my desk. <laughs> I just made that up, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Trademark. So with this kind of a career you've had and then the history of writing for so long, then you're you're probably writing every day. That, that's what your, your day looks like? Yeah, that's all I do is I write uh, or, well, or I edit. I do some editing as well. I'm currently writer in residence at the Saskatoon Public Library. I live in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, and uh, Saskatoon's about two and a half hours north of here. So I drive up there once a week, stay over one night and spend two days in the office there. And I work with writers of any level of uh, achievement or interest. They come in, they make appointments and I will mentor them or help them with whatever their current project is or answer their questions or whatever. And I've done a lot of that kind of mentoring and teaching and working. I've done a lot of uh, working with teenage writers. So, yeah, it's all one big thing, really. I work with words is what it boils down to. Oh, very nice. So when it comes to finding that new idea, like uh, like with World Shapers, is it something that just kind of comes out of the blue uh, for you generally, or do you think it's uh, something born from maybe another book that you've already read or, or, or something along those lines? Um, I think idea generation is like a muscle that you exercise over the years. Um, I... I often say in school presentations, I'm in a classroom. I could look around the classroom 
I could easily on the spur of the moment come up with half a dozen story ideas just from stuff that I find in the classroom. So ideas are never never a problem. I have tons of ideas, some of which still haven't been written and maybe never will, but I've got I've got pages of them. <laughs> uh, when it comes to World Shaper, uh, the new series, World Shapers, which is what also gives my podcast its name, it was a bit, not exactly cynical, but it's based on the idea that I think I can write any kind of story. And I wanted a framework which would allow me to tell any kind of story. So what I was looking for was basically what I think is the greatest um, storytelling framework that's ever been created, which is Doctor Who, because the Doctor can travel through time and space, anywhere in time and space, and timelines are changeable, so doesn't even have to be consistent in what happens in history. <laughs> he can go anywhere. Any kind of story can be told in the framework of a, a Doctor Who story, anything from you know knights in shining armor to the well, literally the end of the universe. And I was looking for something a bit like that. Star Trek, the original Star Trek was another wagon train to the stars as the original <laughs> thesis was. And it didn't have an overarching storyline in that case, but every year, every uh, episode, you could tell a, a different kind of story. So I wanted something like that. And the World Shaper series is like that because it takes place in this labyrinth of of shaped worlds, which are worlds where the shaper, sort of like an author living inside his or her novel, lives inside the world that they have shaped. And that world can be shaped to be anything. And then I have my main character who's traveling from world to world as she tries to gather the knowledge of these worlds to take it to Agrair, who's this uh, mysterious uh, woman at the center of the labyrinth, to protect them all from the adversary, who's the bad guy. That's the overall framework. But because every world can be shaped by somebody to be whatever that shaper wants it to be, it sets up any kind of story I want to tell. So uh, my first book was set, the first book was set in a world sort of like ours, but the second book, Master of the World, that's out now, is set in a world shaped by somebody who really loves Jules Verne, so it's very steampunk. <laughs> and the next one that I'm writing now, which doesn't have an official title, my working title for it is Werewolves and Vampires and Peasants, oh my, <laughs> <laughs> because that's the kind of world it is. It has werewolves and vampires, and the one after that, I'm currently thinking, is going to be like a... Humphrey Bogart, Maltese Falcon, film noir kind of world with gangsters. It might literally be a black and white world. I don't know. <laughs> so I just wanted to create this framework where I could play in any kind of world that I could come up with. I could write a story with my main character being the, you know, the, the reader's eyes into this story because the world she comes from is very much like ours. And that means I can also use all kinds of all kinds of geeky jokes, and it is full of my sense of humor. My favorite line in Master of the World is, she says, uh, the worst thing about traveling to different worlds is that nobody gets your Star Trek jokes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's great. Well, and I'm, I'm going to guess, I, I forgot to look, so I'm not sure about this uh, exactly, but I'm going to guess that World Shapers, your book, and the podcast, they may have started around the same time. That may not have been an accident. Uh, the title's not an accident. I, I thought about something like the podcast for a while because I love talking to other authors. And, uh, you know, I go to conventions and we talk to authors. And my favorite things at conventions has always been the the uh, technical panels about writing, about the process of writing and all that kind of stuff. I've always mm -hmm. loved that kind of thing mm -hmm. and seeing how other writers do it because we all do it differently. Um, so I used the fact that World Shaper was coming out, the first book in the series was coming out last September. I thought, well, this seems like a good thing to tie in because I have this idea for this labyrinth of shaped worlds, which, as I said, is like novelists living inside the worlds that they've created. Mm -hmm. So I said, maybe this was a good time to give that 
ago, and I did, and I'm up to 36 or 7 episodes as of this one that comes out this weekend, I think. Um, and I've talked because I've been in the field for a while, and I've met a lot of people at conventions, and I can, you know, I have that connection. I say, well, this, you know, I'm a multiply published award-winning science fiction fantasy author. I want to talk to you about your fiction, and it opens some doors. So I said, I've had, you know, John Scalzi and Robert J. Sawyer and Tad Williams and David Brin and Lee Modisett Jr. and Victoria Schwab and, you know, just this huge list of best-selling authors um, that have been I've talked to on the podcast. And uh, and yes, it's also a, a nice little bit of promotion because. When the fans of those authors tune into the podcast, the first thing they hear is my introduction in which I tell them about my book. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it can't hurt. <laughs> well, it's a great play on words to have the World Shaper book. And then, like you said, the authors who are World Shapers of, them, of their own. Yeah, and I actually, especially in the early episodes, I, I said that I thought world shaping is a better term than world building because – we're all of us really starting with the same raw material, which is the world that we know, this world. And then we shape it into a different world as opposed to building a world from scratch. So that was kind of, for a while, I kind of made a point of that in the, the podcast and would ask people about that. That's kind of, I've kind of let that go. But that is, I, I, I do think world shaping is actually in some ways a better world, a better term for what we do than world building. I agree. I agree. Yeah, because it's it's got to be formed. It's got to be taken care of and and shaped into something that, you know, it's raw form. It, our story is, is just that cold rock and it's got to have life brought from that, you know, shaped from the whatever euphemism you want to use, um, you know, from there until we finally have this story that does have a life. Yeah. All we're really drawing on is what we know. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I was definitely riveted. I mean, you really helped me out uh, here uh, about a week ago. I had a couple hours drive, so I was diving into your interview with Orson Scott Card, which was amazing. Like, my drive was over before I knew it, and that was a lot of fun. And, of course, you had a, one of my uh, my own past guests, Tosca Lee. That was great to listen to as well. So it's a great show. Well, thank you, and uh it's as far as I know, it's going to keep going indefinitely. <laughs> I, I managed to somehow schedule just as we're having this conversation. I somehow scheduled six interviews over two weeks, which is not ideal because it means I don't actually have time to read everybody's books, which is what I would like to do before I talk to anybody. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, it means I and since I, it only comes out every two weeks because it does take a certain amount of time. Uh, to get them ready, and I do have books to write and stuff like that. That actually means I'm probably good till uh, till uh, the end of the year. So <laughs> I feel your pain. Yep, I have. Uh, let's see, I have you tonight, an author in Japan tomorrow night, and an author in Australia Saturday night. So <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun. And then I'm going to take a break for a couple of days and and focus on my writing and getting the episodes ready. But with the experience that you have. Uh, writing so many different sorts of projects and then continuing to write in different, um, not exactly, uh, I guess, genres, but it's, it's still sci-fi. Do you find it challenging to uh, to want to reach into, is there something that, you, that you're wanting to challenge yourself with and do something different anywhere down the road? Well, I've written so many different kinds of books that uh, I don't know that there's anything I specifically have in mind. I'd like to write something that millions of people buy and maybe fabulously rich. That would be a nice <laughs> thing to do. Um, hasn't happened yet, but you know, if you're listening to this and you would like to help out, please buy my books. Absolutely. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, 
I come up with new ideas and every new idea has its own challenges. And then on the nonfiction side, I never know what might uh, come along. I've written things I never would have dreamed that I would be writing about, like the aforementioned bi uh, biography of the Ayatollah Khomeini. I never thought I was going to write about him. So, yeah, I, I'm sort of I have so many fiction projects in my head that I would like to get to uh, that I'm you know, sort of pushing ahead with. And then the nonfiction tends to come out of nowhere. Uh, people just, you know, somebody will call me up and, and want me to do something. So uh, I get challenged enough without specifically reaching out and trying to come up with something <laughs> to challenge myself. <laughs> so it's almost like your your science fiction that you write with the, the world shapers and your other stories, that this is kind of your relaxation to kind of come back to what's home for you. It's what I love to do the most, and if I had my druthers, that is all I would do. But at the same time, I'm a full-time freelance writer, and I make a living at it. And there aren't that many freelance writers who can say that. So yeah. even though I'm, you know, I've written stuff that I'm not that wild about in some ways, I've never written anything that I, you know, if if I really really hated the idea of doing it, I just wouldn't do it. And I I should mention that my best uh, freelance career move was marrying an engineer. So that was a very good. <laughs> From a family income point of view, that was a great thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, so you've got uh, World Shapers Book 1 came out last year. The newest one, Master of the World, just came out uh, last month, September. Is there anything about this book that uh, we should know going in? Uh, actually, the opening chapter is very complete in telling you what happened in the first book. Uh, which should not stop you from reading the first book, because uh, in the <laughs> in Master of the World, I give the recap in about four pages. And of course, the first book is 100,000 words. So lots more happens in the first book than is in the recap. But uh, no, if you if you only pick up Master of the World, the opening chapter does, in fact, set it up uh, very, very well, I think, which is why I think that's the one I'm going to read. Wonderful. All right. Well, Edward, where can where can people find you and follow you? Uh, my website is very complete. It's edwardwillett.com. Two T's on Willett. That's the most common error in, uh, in my name. Uh, so it's e Edward and then W-I-L-L-E-T-T.com. And I'm on Twitter at E-Willett, E-W-I-L-L-E-T-T. And The World Shapers is at theworldshapers.com. And the Twitter feed is uh, at theworldshapers. And I'm also on a Facebook, if you, uh, you know, facebook.com slash edward.willett, I think is my author page. And the World Shapers has a page on Facebook, too. But if you follow it on Twitter, you probably won't find anything different on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. And everybody will make sure and put links to the all of those on the show notes. So that way you can click on that as soon as you as soon as you hear that chapter today, then you can click over there and grab one of these books and and uh, find out what else uh, Mr. Will is up to. Edward, thank you so much for, for being a guest. This has been a lot of fun for me, and I, I can't wait to hear this chapter. Well, thank you. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to step aside, and we're going to hear a chapter from Master of the World, World Shapers, Book 2. Chapter 1. Buffeted by swirling winds, I clung to the rope ladder lifting me from the mysterious and rapidly disintegrating island in the ocean below toward the giant flying ship in the sky above and reflected on what a lousy week I was having. Sunday night, I'd woken from a nightmare in which a stranger wearing a cowboy hat and a long black duster had been standing at the foot of my bed, only to look out my window and see a stranger in a cowboy hat and a long black duster looking up at my bedroom window. Monday night? 
He'd been there again. Tuesday, I'd officially opened my new shop, World Shaper Pottery, on trendy Blackthorn Avenue in Eagle River, Montana, hipster haven of the West, although the store's opening had been overshadowed, literally, by the scaffolding covering the entrance, supporting two young men hanging the shop sign, and the black storm clouds hanging over the Rockies to the West, clouds which, infuriatingly and bewilderingly, nobody but me seemed to find threatening. Still, sinister strangers, scaffolding, and storm clouds aside, it had been shaping up to be a pretty good day. I'd had coffee with my boyfriend, Brent, at the Human Bean, the coffee shop down the street, and at lunch had headed back to the Bean with my best friend, Aisha Tripathi. That was when things went literally to hell. Two van loads of black-clad terrorists pulled up outside, charged into the coffee shop, and started shooting. Bullets tore Aisha's slight body apart, right in front of my eyes. Then the leader of the terrorist walked over to where I sat stunned on the blood-slicked floor. Hello, Shauna, he said, and goodbye. He reached out and touched my forehead. I felt a weird shock. Then he drew his pistol and aimed it between my eyes. He was going to kill me. This can't be happening, I thought, and then, this isn't happening, I screamed. And just like that, it wasn't. It hadn't. Suddenly, it was three hours earlier, but Aisha was gone. So was everyone else who had been killed in the attack. And the worst of it was, nobody remembered they'd ever even existed. This, to put it mildly, freaked me out. The sudden appearance inside my shop shortly thereafter of the mysterious stranger who had been in both my nightmare and the street outside my window did nothing to soothe my nerves, especially not when he started spouting gibberish about me having shaped the world in which I lived and having an amazing amount of power and being just one shaper of many in a vast labyrinth of shaped worlds and possibly the only one who could save the shaped worlds from the adversary who just invaded my world. Apparently he was the guy who pointed his pistol at my head. If I'd just follow him into all those other worlds and gather the knowledge of how they were shaped and then carry it to somebody named Agrair who, yeah, I pretty much stopped listening at that point too. It was like, the story thus far at the start of an episode of a television series with a season-long story arc. When you're binging the show on stream picks, and who watches TV any other way these days, the minute you see that, you click the skip intro button. But in the middle of this previously and made-up crap monologue, the storm broke again. And then terrorists were shooting at me again. Left without much choice, I fled with Carl Yatzer, as he called himself. On the radio, we heard the mayor describing me as a dangerous terrorist. Apparently, when the adversary had touched me, he'd stolen my knowledge of how my world was shaped, what Carl called the Hochma. His power was somewhat limited by the fact I was still alive, which meant we were sharing the Hochma, but he had enough to rewrite people's memories just by talking to them. He'd talk to the police and the mayor and... And then I called Brent, and he didn't know who I was, and I knew the adversary had reached him too. I smashed my cell phone, not out of frustration, well, not just out of frustration, but because I realized it could be used to track me. Carl Yatzer and I holed up that night in a rundown closed for the summer resort, and that was my very special Tuesday. Wednesday had a lot to live down to, but it managed. First thing in the morning, I murdered a National Bureau of Investigation agent in a helicopter, just by imagining the pilot had to help me at all costs. So successfully, the pilot pushed his partner out of the door and onto the shore of the lake across which Carl and I, in a canoe, were paddling for our lives. The sound of the falling NBI agent hitting the wooden pier by the boat shed went a long way toward convincing me both that I really could shape my world and that maybe I really, really shouldn't. 
Then we got into the helicopter, and the pilot cheerfully threw away his career by flying us up into the mountains before leading the pursuit away, though not as successfully as we might have hoped, since after Carl and I hiked off into the woods towards Snakebite Mine, the location of the portal through which Carl had come from the previous world, already taken over by the adversary, pursuers showed up at the fire camp where we'd landed. At Carl's urging to do something, I hit our tracks by making it snow, or rather, by making it to have already snowed, which also made for a cold, wet camp that night, but whatever. Thursday, we woke to an unwanted visitor, a grizzly, which I convinced to go away just by thinking really hard that he should go away. After the snow and the grizzly, I really couldn't deny my ability to shape my world, even though, much to Carl's consternation, I had no memory of his boss, the mysterious Agrair, or being taught by her to be a shaper at some weird school in some other version of reality, which Carl said was the original reality, the first world. Then we had to go around an avalanche that had resulted from the snow I'd caused to happen, I mean caused to have already happened, and I had another reason to take Jeff Goldblum's advice in Jurassic Park and think about whether, even though I could shape the world, I should. When it came to shaping, it seemed clear, unintended consequences were a bitch. This was reinforced later that night when we reached Snakebite Mine. After Carl cold-bloodedly shot two members of the adversary's cadre, who had been left there to guard the portal, I shaped the caretaker to let us into the mine. He blew himself up instead, burying the portal under tons of rock. But I shaped those, too, opening a path, and then helped Carl destroy the portal, cutting the adversary off from some of his power. Then we drove off, and I shaped an entire water-filled quarry into existence, into which we dropped the truck. And then I shaped the caretakers of a dude ranch so we could take some horses. But I did it so badly, they both ended up dead, as did a perfectly innocent horse. And then we rode all night long until I was practically dead in the saddle. I stayed awake only because I'm allergic to horses, and it's hard to doze while sneezing. And then we finally slept. And that was Thursday. Friday, I shaped a photographer to let us steal his car. At least I managed to avoid killing him in the process. Well, as far as I know. Then I shaped a pilot to fly us to Appleville, Oregon, my hometown where I shaped my mother to forget I'd ever existed, to forget she'd ever had a daughter. Of all the horrible things that had happened that week, that was the worst. But it was only Friday. Saturday, we stowed away on an apple truck to the coast. There, I shaped a woman to let us onto her sailing yacht, the Amazon, because Carl said the only place he could make a portal into the next world was out in the Pacific somewhere. Unfortunately, the Coast Guard found us, by then, the adversary had worked his way up to shaping the president, so every branch of law enforcement and the military was looking for us. I managed to shape our chunk of the ocean to bring up a fog, greatly impressing Carl. But in the process, I also accidentally fashioned a typhoon, and that meant I spent Saturday night thinking really, really hard about the Amazon not sinking. I guess I thought hard enough, because we were still afloat Sunday morning, this morning, which is when we found, right where the portal had to be opened, a mysterious island that wasn't on any charts. The next thing we knew, there were helicopters and soldiers chasing us, and we were trying to find our way through tunnels infested with monsters, and then we were fighting for our lives on top of a human sacrifice altar in an arena full of shadowy, not-quite-real spectators. At one point, a giant naked David, Michelangelo's David, to be precise, smashed an equally naked, though not nearly as tall, soldier into bloody paste, then there was a fight, and then I stabbed a guy's foot, which spilled blood on the altar, and the portal opened, and I went through it, and Carl didn't. Which was how I had found myself on the almost vanished island below, alone, only to be hauled aloft by a sailor hanging onto a rope ladder, dangling from a giant flying ship, both held aloft and propelled by, well, propellers.
In the bow, the strange craft flew a black flag with a golden sun in the center, one I'd recognized instantly because I had gone through a Jules Verne kick when I was a little girl. At least that's how I remember it, although what in my past is real and what contrived, I can't tell. The flag of Rober the Conqueror from the novel of the same name, which meant this impossible vessel had to be... Yes, there it was, on the dark blue bow in glistening gold script. Albatross. The albatross's hull might have come straight from a sailing ship, except for the absence of a keel, and except for the stubby biplane wings extending to port and starboard. These, I presumed, were primarily for steering purposes, not to provide lift, since the thing was currently hovering. What held it aloft were 74 whirling helicopter rotors, two on each of 37 masts. The down draft buffeted me as the man in an old-fashioned sailor's uniform who had pulled me onto the lowest rungs of the ladder looked down at me, jerked his thumb upward, then started to climb. For the first time, I saw he wore earplugs. There is a knack to climbing a rope ladder, which I apparently didn't have. The thing swayed and bounced as I struggled upward until I thought I'd either fall off or throw up, but eventually, panting, I reached the top. My rescuer, with the help of another man in an equally old-fashioned sailor's uniform, honestly, they looked like they'd stepped straight out of a community theater production of HMS Pinafore, hauled me onto the deck through an opening in the wire trellis that ringed it in lieu of bulwarks, leaving me sprawled on my stomach. This gave me an unexpected opportunity to closely examine the deck. It wasn't made of wood. It was a smooth, unbroken expanse of dark blue... something. What was the albatross made of? It had been nearly twenty years since I'd read Rober the Conqueror. For some reason, paper came to mind, but that couldn't be right, could it? The sailors, or maybe aeronauts was a better term, grabbed my arms and pulled me to my feet. I tried to tug free, but their grips tightened. They half-dragged me aft beneath the howling rotors, making me wish I had earplugs too, toward the cabins at the back. Atop the sternmost stood the helmsman, as pinophoriously clad as the rest of the crew, inside a glass wheelhouse. Behind him, as at the bow, hung two much larger propellers, vertical rather than horizontal, though only idling at the moment. The whole flying monstrosity was impossible. Or was it? Verne had based his flights of fancy on what the engineers and scientists of his time knew or thought they knew. He'd certainly thought something like this was at least theoretically possible. And from what Carl had told me, the shaper of this world could actually have altered the laws of physics enough to allow something like this to fly. I'll ask the shaper when I see him, I thought, as I stumbled toward the stern cabins, there were others at the bow, between my taciturn escorts, deafened and windblown. Maybe I'm about to. Clearly, whomever had shaped this world had fancied himself master of it, and since this was the albatross, the airship of Rober the Conqueror, a.k.a. Master of the World, the title of the second novel in which he'd appeared, he had surely set himself up as that Vernian character, supervillain or superhero, depending, like his better-known counterpart, Captain Nemo, on your point of view. In a way, I was thrilled to be inside a world clearly modeled after Jules Verne's invented tales. In another, I was terrified. Carl had not come through the portal with me. I was alone, and while I knew in a general way what I was supposed to do to fulfill the quest I'd been unwillingly given, find a shaper and get him or her to somehow give me his or her hokma, so that if, when, the adversary arrived, he could not steal that hokma, kill the shaper, and then reshape this world into another copy of his preferred totalitarian utopia, there was one tiny little detail of that process Carl had never spelled out for me. Exactly how one took the hokma of another shaper, even if it were freely offered. We reached the only door on the starboard side of the stern cabins. The aeronaut who had first hauled me onto the rope ladder pulled it open. The other propelled me through it. 
I found myself in a short hallway, its walls the same strange, dark, not wood at the deck, with doors to left and right, and another at the far end that presumably led to the port side of the vessel. Just past the right-hand door, stairs led up, probably to the glass wheelhouse over our heads. A little farther down the hall, stairs led down, beneath and parallel to those climbing up. The noise had dropped precipitously. Very impressive soundproofing had clearly been built into this version of the albatross. As I recall, it hadn't been needed in the book version. The whirling of the blades had been soundless, Vern never having heard a real helicopter in action. Apparently, if the shaper had bent the law of physics, he hadn't bent them that much. The man who had first grabbed me nodded to his companion. Back to your post, Dardentor. I'll present her to the captain. Aye, aye, sir, said Dardentor. To my surprise, he actually tipped his cap to me. Ma'am? He didn't go back out onto the deck. Instead, he went to the staircase and down. Makes sense, I thought. The best way to get around the ship has to be below decks, where you don't have to fight the rotor wash. Very polite, I said out loud. Now that we can hear ourselves talk, who are you? Apparently, politeness was limited to the lesser ranks. My guard ignored me, instead tugging me to the center of the corridor and tapping on the door that presumably led into the aftmost cabin. Enter, said a deep voice. My guard slid the door open, stepped back, and indicated I should go through. I took a deep breath, clenched hands suddenly inclined to tremble, and strode firmly around the corner and into the cabin beyond. It looked, well, exactly like you might imagine the captain's cabin on one of Verne's science fictional vessels should look, luxurious late 19th century ship's cabinish, with comfortable couches and chairs, hooded electric lamps illuminating sculptures and paintings, one of which looked like the Mona Lisa. How did that work exactly? And a sizable collection of leather-bound books in a floor-to-ceiling bookcase, which took up most of the bulkhead through which I'd entered. Four portholes, two to port and two to starboard, and big panes of glass in the windowed stern poured natural light into the cabin. The aft windows also showed a view of the sea, no land in sight, I noted, and the inner halves of the idling stern propellers. The captain of the albatross sat at a desk made of the same dark knot wood as the deck, the bright sea-reflected light streaming through the windows behind him, turning him into a featureless silhouette. He stood as I hesitantly approached, and I abruptly revised my estimate of his size. The man was huge, easily as big as the guy Michelangelo's David had crushed back in my world less than an hour ago by my inner clock. At least it appeared to be roughly the same time of day here as it had been on the island I'd just left, so maybe I'd be spared jet, uh, portal lag, which totally had to be a thing. My heart was pounding, but I wasn't going to let this giant, whose face I couldn't even see, put me on the defensive. You must be Robur, I said, as boldly as I could manage. I am not, the man said, his voice a reasonable approximation of James Earl Jones's in Darth Vader mode, but I know who you are. You do? My heart leaped. Carl got through after all. I realized that was impossible, even before the captain of the Albatross dashed my momentary hope with his next words. Your foolish assumption I am Rover proves my suspicion. It does? This doesn't sound good. It wasn't. You are a spy for Prince Dakar, the captain said, voice cold and hard as iron in January, and you will answer my questions truthfully, or I'll have you tossed over the side to feed the sharks. You've been dreaming just one dream nearly all your life, hoping, scheming, just one theme. Will you be a wife? Will you be some he-man's property? Good news that he mans me. This equation, girl plus man. <laughs> and there you go, folks. That was Edward Willett reading Master of the World, The World Shapers, Book Two. 
That was incredible, and yes, that is him singing in the background right now. That's his rendition of me that I mentioned before. I thought I'd give you a little taste of it because it's so good. <laughs> Make sure you click the links in the show notes to get more from Edward Willett. You know, like this song and check out his other books. Uh, don't forget to also check out his World Shapers podcast. Incredible interviews and such good stuff. Don't forget to also check out the links in the show notes for our friends and sponsors of the show. And hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next week when we come back with another author, another book, and a new sample chapter. Take care, everyone. I'm going to let this play for just another few seconds. <laughs> you got to find it on YouTube and catch the rest of it. <laughs> Take care. We shall be the perfect pair. Rather like my thighs, you are face to face with destiny. All roads lead to the best things in life are all's well that ends with me. Escape me, there's no way as certain as Dore Bell when you marry. Well, Bell, what'll it be? Will it be yes? Or will it be oh yes?